Welcome back to The Complete History of Coffee, Episode 23, The Great Depression, Part 1. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. As you heard in the title, this episode is part one of two on the history of the Great Depression. I had originally intended to cover everything from the Depression in one episode, but the episode was turning out to be an hour long. So to keep the content flowing and to stick with my typical aim of around 25 minutes, we will simply break up the information between two episodes. This episode will focus more on Latin America, while next episode we will see what was going on in the United States during the Depression. Since we are covering the end of the prohibition between this episode and the next, I am also releasing a new members episode on beer history for my Patreon subscribers. So if you are interested in the history of chocolate, wine, tea, and beer, or simply want to help support the show, then head over to Patreon or social media and search for the Complete History Podcast Series to get access to exclusive members episodes. To celebrate the end of the Prohibition, this episode we will be opening with an espresso martini tasting. To start with making an espresso martini, we're going to go ahead and pull a shot of espresso. You want to measure out two ounces of the espresso with a jigger. If you don't have a jigger, then find something else that you can measure it with. And you want to get those two ounces and go ahead and pour it into a mixer or even into a cup. If you're not going to be shaking it, you could also stir it. Can I do something for you, Mr. Bond? Uh, just a drink. A martini, shaken, not stirred. So, typically, someone would probably be using vodka and a mix of uh, Kahlua, a coffee liqueur. However, since I decided to use espresso, that's going to be taking the place of the Kahlua and the vanilla in the place of the sweetener that you'd normally get from the Kahlua. Um, alternatively, you could also do it with simple syrup. I just personally like it with vanilla. And uh, instead of vodka, we're actually going to be using our uh, coffee liquor that I got from Wayward Sons, the distillery that I interviewed that is out of here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that makes liquor from distilled coffee. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and get two ounces of this. I can already smell the coffee in it. And then we're going to go ahead and do one ounce of vanilla. Again, you could do simple syrup. And alternatively, you could do an ounce of Kahlua. I might do a little bit less on the espresso, though. Maybe do like an ounce of espresso and an ounce of Kahlua, since it is going to add that coffee flavor to it. In the case of using our distilled coffee, it's definitely going to add more of a coffee flavor to it. So um, I personally added just a splash of cream to it. You don't have to. Typically, an espresso martini is not going to be made with any sort of cream. And if you add a lot, you're kind of going more into the realm of a white Russian. But, I mean, think of it sort of just like how do you take your coffee? Do you take it black? What do you want with a little bit of cream? Since I already knew it was going to be stronger using this, I went ahead and just added a splash of cream to it. So go ahead and shake it. I'm going to go ahead and shake it pretty well. Okay, and then we're going to go ahead and get out our glass. Now, typically, you would want to use um, a martini glass. I don't own a martini glass, but 
we're going to go ahead and strain the drink. This is the type of drink where you don't want the ice to actually be in there. So if you are making this not in a Boston shaker, you can always go ahead and just strain out the ice from whatever glass you were stirring it with. Okay, so let's go ahead and do the tasting itself. Oh, so right off the bat, I definitely get the espresso in the smell. You get that roastiness. I'm also getting um, some sweet notes from it. The vanilla is coming through a little bit. To be honest, it actually reminds me a little bit of a uh, cold brew. kind of has like a bit of a cold brew kind of smell. And on that note, if you want to use cold brew for an espresso martini, you can certainly use cold brew concentrate. It actually makes for a very smooth espresso martini. Let's go ahead and taste it. It's actually really, really good. Um, it's a very nice mix. Again, I wasn't sure how strong this was going to be, but I think it adds contrast in the coffee flavor if i'm remembering correctly this actually was made as a distilled cold brew coffee that's probably why i'm getting a lot of that um, cold brew in the flavor profile it definitely is giving me kind of an espresso roastiness but also a cold brew smoothness i, I think this is a really perfect liquor to use for making something like an espresso martini or a white russian try it yourself at home um, see what you think I highly recommend trying it with the uh, coffee from Wayward Sons. See if you like their liquor or not. Um, but if not, you can always do vodka and Kahlua or some sort of other coffee like espresso or cold brew. On October 29th, 1929, one of the greatest disasters in modern history struck the world. The Great Depression. This event was triggered five days prior on a day known as Black Thursday, when investors sold off millions of shares in various companies. This resulted in further sales of stocks on October 29th, known as Black Tuesday, because historians are so original in their naming. Looking a little further back, the stock market reached its zenith for the Roaring Twenties in August of 1929. But a slow recession had already begun, even by this point. Needless to say, after the Great Depression began, a mass wave of debt, unemployment, and homelessness began. This was worsened by bank crises in the following two years, and reached its low point during the collapse of the banking system in 1933. And all this was followed up by the Dust Bowl, which saw the destruction of many farms and homes during the mid to late 1930s. Let us not forget this economic disaster was not restricted to the United States. It was in fact felt on a global scale. But what effect, if any, did this have on coffee? I want to take a second to consider where we are in the history of coffee. From the time coffee was first discovered around 800 CE until 1700, coffee was grown exclusively in Africa and the Middle East. By 1830, only 1% of coffee was being grown there, with 38% being found in the Caribbean, and the rest split between Asia and Latin America. But as we approach closer to our point in the story, we find only 1% of coffee production taking place in Africa in the Middle East. 
and around 91% in Latin America. These points in time correlate with John Morris's breakup of periods for copy history. He labels them as the wine of Islam, a colonial good, industrial product, and a global commodity. We are currently in the middle of the transition from industrial product into global commodity. As we shall see in this episode, coffee growing will soon decrease slightly in Latin America as it takes off once again in the origin place of coffee, Africa. But how do we get from a market dominated by Brazil to one in the 70s with strong African influence? Or even by 2011 with a sharp increase in coffee out of Asia? Well, a simple answer to the question is what consumers want and what coffee farmers are able to produce. The period of the Great Depression is a perfect window into what coffee-producing countries wanted to produce versus what consumers could actually buy in the fragile market of the 1930s. Looking back at Brazil, the valorization of coffee continued into the mid-20th century. This was, in fact, the third valorization and took place in 1921. This time, they realized they needed to store their coffee themselves instead of overseas. So, they created 11 warehouses in Sao Paulo to cut the cost of storage. Unfortunately for Americans, this meant there was now little influence anyone had on Brazil in regards to how much coffee was being stored or sold. A delegation representing the interest of the coffee industry reached out to Herbert Hoover about addressing the problems they were facing with increased coffee prices. Not yet president, Hoover was Secretary of Commerce at this time. He wanted a way to handle this situation without upsetting Brazil. So he spoke to Congress about a, quote, growing menace in international commerce and relations, end quote. He was, of course, speaking about Brazil. Rubber and coffee became the main focuses, as America had become known for making cars and drinking coffee by this point. There was little they could do besides preventing American banks from funding Brazil's valorizations, but Hoover at least had his announcement published in the New York Times, which stated, Hoover warns world of trade war. Brazil responded by going to England and getting money. Luckily, the rubber problem was solved by the creation of synthetic rubber, but no synthetic coffee could be created to solve the current friction between the two countries. Good thing, too, I don't imagine synthetic coffee would taste very good. Many Brazilians became upset, feeling like America was being hypocritical with all of its monopolies and big trust. Further, it wasn't their fault coffee was being marked up 20 cents upon its import into the United States. Securing continued loans throughout the remainder of the 1920s, Sao Paulo, along with other major coffee regions in Brazil, pushed forward with growing and valorization. However, crisis loomed as 100 million new coffee trees were soon to begin producing coffee. But heads of industry were not concerned as they entered 1929. The head of Atlantic and Pacific, Baron Frila, and newly elected President Hoover, urged Brazil to begin selling coffee at a lower price. But they wouldn't have it, even as foreign investors began pulling back their money. On an interesting side note, Hoover stated during his election, quote, 
We shall soon be in sight of the day when poverty will be banished from this nation. Boy, is he going to be in for a surprise. But unless the U.S. implemented a military protectorate in Brazil, like they had in Nicaragua, there was little that could be done. For those of you unaware, from 1909 to 1933, there was a nearly continuous U.S. Marine presence in Nicaragua, which ensured American interest in the country, including control over coffee production. But the coffee men of Sao Paulo were millionaires and felt invincible. Similar inequality of rich coffee plantation owners and poor coffee workers was present in Guatemala and Costa Rica as well, setting up problems as we enter the Great Depression. The problem of overplanting coffee would come to fruition in fall of 1929, as rumors of a massive crop coming the following year began to spread. Negotiations between Brazil and Atlantic and Pacific's Baron Freyla began in September, with the hopes of selling off a million bags of coffee. For context, a bag of bulk coffee beans was a standard created by Brazil for shipping to other countries with each bag holding a standard 60 kilograms, or 130 pounds, of coffee. So they were trying to introduce 130 million pounds of coffee onto the market, which worried many as it would likely plummet coffee's price value. Brazil, seeing the writing on the wall, sought another big loan from Lazard Brothers and Rothschilds, but neither had money to loan. Further, American banks couldn't loan them money, both from lack of funds and due to Hoover's oversight. On Friday, October 11th, 1929, the Santos Balsa, or Brazilian Coffee Exchange, opened for trading. Everything seemed normal until sellers began realizing the Institute's broker wasn't buying any coffee. After attempts to lower the price of their coffee and still not making any sales, People realized the Institute was broke. I would say we could call this day Black Friday, but I think we can come up with a more original name like Dark Roast Friday. They attempted to conceal the truth from the New York Coffee Exchange, but it was to no avail, as two weeks later the New York Stock Exchange would crash, and with it, most of the world's market. As Mark Pendergast points out, it's no surprise the coffee market crashed, right about the same time as the world market, as coffee was so intertwined with world commerce by this time. And I can't help but think coffee's crash could well have been a warning sign of things to come if everyone in this era wouldn't have been so blinded by the supposed prosperity at the end of the Roaring Twenties. As the Thirties rolled in, many in Brazil were ready for a change in leadership. Well, really, the aristocracy wanted a change? See, up to this point, Brazil had been a democracy, or at least men who owned land and could pass a literacy test were able to vote. This meant only white men with some level of economic influence could vote, since many of indigenous and Afro-descent were unlikely to have had proper education. So in reality, about 6% of the population could vote. Keep in mind, many wealthy landowners made their money from the coffee industry. So there was a vested interest in ensuring coffee was being supported by the government. 
Unfortunately, President Washington Luis not being able to manage the disastrous Dark Roast Friday or prevent the subsequent global Great Depression led many coffee plantation owners to be unhappy with his presidency. He also attempted to have a fellow aristocrat from Sao Paulo made president, even though the Brazilian government was supposed to switch off candidates every election between Sao Paulo and Minas Gerais. So several coffeemen supported a new leader, Getulio Vargas, to instead become president. Washington was in fact deposed from office three weeks before his term ended in the 1930 Brazilian Revolution. And Vargas was now essentially a dictator, since he was never formally inaugurated. So this marks the beginning of the Vargas era, and the end of the Old Republic. The Republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire. Ironically, the new dictator gave women the right to vote in 1932, but essentially stripped away the democracy the country had worked so hard to achieve. However, Vargas offered a charismatic leader who cared for his people, or at least that was the image he was able to create. In any case, Brazil needed restrictions on coffee planting, as every year saw more coffee than the market could hope to sell. Vargas put a stop to all new coffee planting, penalizing people who continued planting new coffee trees. But by this point, no one was really looking to start growing coffee under such a price lump. See, many people could no longer afford to buy coffee during the Depression. By 1931, coffee had dropped to about one-third the price it was at before the coffee market crashed. Reforms were made to increase coffee workers' wages, which inversely took more money away from the wealthy Paulistas. A new agency was formed by the Brazilian government and was placed under the National Instituto Brasileiro do Café which we'll call simply IBC. The value of coffee fell, and the stockpile held by the IBC became too much to hold, and so incineration plants were established to destroy their overstock of 80 million bags of coffee. Three years' worth of coffee, all incinerated. The question of what to do with the remainder of their coffee supply led to ideas like packing together coffee into bricks to be used as fuel for trains or to extract useful products from it, such as oil, alcohol, and caffeine. Brazil's focus on coffee growing shifted from a strength to its seeming downfall. One former Brazilian coffee grower lamented, quote, coffee is our national misfortune, end quote. At this point, what they really needed was wheat. So coffee was traded with America for wheat, and new Brazilian coffee shops were opened in parts of Europe and Japan to sell surplus coffee. Not everyone was pleased, though, as the Paulistas started an insurrection in mid-1932. This caused a fear of rising coffee prices in those in charge of America's Grain Stabilization Board. But after Vargas stabilized the situation, coffee importing was resumed. Let's travel around a little to take a look at what's happening with other countries in Latin America during the Great Depression. Much of Latin America had wealthy oligarchs who made their money from coffee. And as the value of coffee dropped, it meant many wanted someone stronger who could steer their country in the right direction. This essentially meant installing dictators, as happened in Brazil. 
El Salvador was a military junta under Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez in 1931. He ruled for 20 years as an aggressive dictator, who is remembered for La Mantanza, or the massacre of the country's communist population. What he is less known for is shared power between the military and coffee oligarchs. That and El Brujo, or the witch, because of his many hippy-dippy views. And I don't mean a new age hippie with their sage and tarot cards. I'm talking about some pretty far out there concepts of the universe. His people, however, remembered him for the poor treatment they suffered under his reign, as many worked long hours for little pay in the coffee industry, which accounted for almost all of the country's exports. These terrible conditions, mixed with unlivable wages, led many to join the Communist Party and attempt a revolt. Many of those who rebelled were of indigenous descent, and so many indigenous people were killed, even if they weren't involved in the revolt. Estimates put the casualty count at around 30,000. Aiding El Brujo was the wealthy coffeemen who were named civic guards and were allowed to literally kill people on the streets. Fearing reprisals, they tried to prevent the introduction of new technology as a means of stopping the spread of communists. This meant industrialization was slowed and, as a result, reliance on coffee was increased. Guatemala's dictator, Jorge Obico Castañeda, came to power in 1931 and similarly suppressed resistance by imprisoning, exiling, and killing his opponents. He tried to appease indigenous people by getting rid of debt slavery, but implemented a law which essentially kept them stuck working on the same land. He even allowed coffee plantation owners to kill their workers if they deemed it fit. That's crazy to think about in comparison to many today who get upset about some jobs being able to fire them without just cause, but here these people were being killed by their jobs without just cause. Nicaragua's Anastasio Garcia became a dictator in 1934 after assassinating the previous leader. He became powerful through his 46 plantations, making himself the largest landowner in the country. He similarly massacred anyone who was even suspected of treason. By contrast, Honduras's dictator did not commit such atrocities. There, coffee production was increased, but it was bananas which played a more important role for the country's exports. Mexico and Costa Rica were both democracies by this time, following the Mexican Revolution in 1917 and the exile of Costa Rica's dictator in 1919. For Mexico, this meant native populations gained better rights to their land and as a result began growing more coffee. But their economy was more focused on mining during the period of the Great Depression. Costa Rica was more focused on coffee and similarly faced issues during the Depression. Luckily, those problems were merely a drop in the price of coffee and not oppression of its citizens. By 1933, the state implemented laws to ensure fair prices for coffee producers. 
Colombia, like Brazil, became extremely focused on coffee exporting during the 20s. It was the second largest coffee producer in the world by the 1920s, with coffee making up around 70% of the country's total exports. The fall in price of coffee during the Depression led them to create the National Federation of Colombian Coffee Growers in 1927, which allowed for a strong hand to direct change. The Federation lowered the price of their coffee as a way to sell more coffee to Americans during the Depression, which was a rather successful tactic. In fact, Colombia's Coffee Federation made a price agreement with Brazil's coffee institution. But the Depression led to high interest rates on land in Colombia, which led many to simply stop paying their debt and essentially claim squatters' rights. Much of the privately owned land was turned into public land, which meant a decline in the large coffee haciendas and the creation of many smaller plantations. So unlike in El Salvador and Brazil, the coffee elites lost power and were forced to begin focusing on other industries for money. Colombia began selling its coffee at higher prices, despite their price agreement with Brazil. Further, Brazil had gone from supplying 65% of America's coffee at the start of the Depression to just over half by 1937. Colombia and other Latin American nations gained more power on the market. So, in essence, Brazil realized they were burning all of their coffee just to allow other nations to overtake them in sales. To make matters worse, no other Latin American countries wanted to lower the price of their higher-grade coffee for Brazil's sake, because lower-grade Robusta coffee was beginning to take hold in America and Europe during the Depression. Much of this was from Africa, which was rising as a coffee producer again, for the first time since the bean was taken over to Yemen around a millennia prior. In fact, they doubled their coffee output during this time and overtook Asia. As a result, Latin America attempted to keep out Africa and Asia, which was largely under British, French, and Portuguese control, with even Ethiopia becoming part of the Italian Empire during the mid-1930s. This led to concern for those countries in Latin America. Brazil went from supplying 75% of America's coffee to just 50%, while the price of coffee from other Latin American countries grew higher as their quality was better. This encouraged more production and consumption of coffee from Mexico and Central America. But even these Latin American countries faced problems from the Great Depression. Negotiations led them to establish the Pan-American Coffee Bureau in 1936. Attempting to navigate economic issues of the Depression and discuss the rising influence of Africa, they held a Pan-American Coffee Conference in Cuba in August of 1937. Going into the conference, Brazil accused Colombia of free-riding on their efforts to sustain the price of coffee. So in a fit of frustration, the IBC threatened to flood the market with coffee if the other countries didn't stop taking advantage of their attempts to stabilize the market. But no one believed they would actually do this, and the conference did little to help Brazil's concerns. Shortly after this, in November, Vargas officially declared himself dictator and enacted his policy of free competition. In simple terms, he said, you think I won't? Bet. And with that, they flooded the market and the price of coffee plummeted.
America responded surprisingly in support of Brazil's decision, seeing Brazil had done its best to hold back the floodgates. Although maybe it's not all that surprising as this could easily allow for a reduction in the price of coffee for many Americans struggling financially during the Depression. Brazilians, too, were glad to see a reduction in tax on coffee. But as the market became oversaturated throughout 1938, it meant the value of coffee went down, meaning a drastic reduction in income for anyone in the coffee industry in Brazil. However, the following year, war broke out in Europe, and all the coffee-growing countries in the world would have to work together to supply coffee for the biggest war in the history of mankind. World War II is on the horizon. This show is written and produced by me, Arizak. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a latte a month, you can support this and future projects in this series, while getting access to members' episodes, access to transcripts of the show, and a chance to win merch. Speaking of merch, don't forget to pick up a new shirt, hoodie, or mug from our merch site to support your favorite podcast series on Coffee History. Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you'd like to contact us, you can message us through social media or at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, and make sure to share it with your family and friends. To close, here's a quote from Fanny Flagg's Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. Come to think of it, Iggy and Ruth bought the cafe in 1929, right in the height of the Depression. But at the cafe, those Depression years came back to me now as happy times. Even though we were all struggling, we were happy and didn't know it. Thank you.